You may be seated. You'd like to turn in your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 2. By the way, I have a little cold. Hopefully that will not affect. But if I sound a little scratchy. Nehemiah chapter 2. Again, right after Ezra. <clears throat> Hopefully you have like a, you know, maybe even last week's bulletin. <laughs> By the way, in the bulletin you will see an outline. I may not be able to get through it all today. So, Nehemiah. We've been studying his life just to kind of get an overview, and we have found that he has just been a tremendous, tremendous example. Some would call him a hero. I'd call him a hero. By the way, you might say, well, what is a hero? A hero is someone who not only has the ability, but the willingness to sacrifice. Unfortunately, in our society, we have what a lot of people call heroes. And maybe they have ability, but so often you find they're not willing to sacrifice for others. When it comes to Nehemiah, he has the ability as well as the sacrifice. You know, Richard Halverson, he was a chaplain for the Senate many years ago, but he wrote this about heroes. Quote, the hero does not set out to be one. That just kind of caught my attention. A true hero doesn't set out to be one. He is probably most surprised, excuse me, more surprised than others by such recognition. He was there when the crises occurred, and he responded as he always had in any situation. He was simply doing what had to be done. (laughs) Faithful where he was in his duty there, he was ready when the crisis arose, being where he was supposed to be, doing what he was supposed to do, responding as he was, as was his custom, to circumstances as they developed, devoted to duty, he did the heroic. Yeah, that's really true. If, if heroes, or supposed heroes, try to become one, they're really just self-centered. <laughs> But this is what Nehemiah, I think that's a really good illustration, I mean, a good uh, 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 example of what Nehemiah was. He was just doing what he was always supposed to be doing. He was a faithful man. He was a great example. You see this again, over and over and over again, both with the crisis of the uh, building and the wall, but then as soon as the wall was built, what do you find him doing? Worshiping, calling the people back to God. And then he leaves, he comes back, and he has the same hard attitude of wanting to see people walk with God. He was a very consistent man. Very, very consistent. So he was a godly man. But what we saw also is that he's a caring man. I think we've mentioned that word caring over and over again as we've described him. He was a man who cared. By the way, godly people need to be caring people. I, was, uh, I read this good part of this book this week on, the name of the title name is excellent, Crazy Busy. <laughs> you ever find yourself crazy busy? I like the uh, subtitle, a, merciful, a mercifully short book about a really big problem. His name is Kevin DeYoung, young guy. But this is what he wrote in in one of his chapters. It was just a subtitle. The first thing he wrote was this. I am not the Christ. First of all, you've got to get that out of here. You've got to understand that, right? I think sometimes we try to play the Christ. Like we're going to meet the need that only Jesus can meet. But in another subtitle he says this. Care 
is not the same as do. Or let me say it this way, caring is not the same as doing. And he actually quotes John Piper from, uh, from a message he had. And Piper said it this way, that again, John Piper is a preacher out in what, Minnesota. Um, he said this quote, this is Piper. We should care about all suffering, especially eternal suffering. We should care. And then Kevin goes on, he says, he chose the word care quite carefully. He didn't want to say we should do something about all suffering because we can't do something about everything. But we can care. This means when we, we hear about grinding poverty or legal abortion or biblical illiteracy, illiteracy, we are not to be indifferent. We're not to be indifferent. We think and that we feel that these things ought not to be. <clears throat> we won't all care about every issue in the same way, but there are some issues we should all care about. Some issues that should at least prick our hearts and prompt us to pray. By the way, I would say this too. If godly people care and caring people pray, would you agree with that? Do godly people care? Should. If you're godly, you should care. You should care that we live in a broken world and there is all kinds of suffering. And then as such, we can pray. Now, he goes on though, and this is the last point that really struck me. Not giving a rip about sex slaves is not an option for the Christian. Not doing something directly to combat this particular evil is an option. And what he was saying was this. Sometimes we, we, get the, we mix the idea of caring and doing. And by the way, if you do, you'll become very inefficient. Very non-effective. Because what you will do then is run to every need, whatever is the loudest. We need to decide. I mean, we need to care. In fact, I was, uh, this morning, uh, I was just reading just quickly at Fox News on... Uh, how uh, the North Korean Christians and North Korea itself is in such upheaval. And, and, and the, the guy who is, uh, John, what is his name? I forget. But anyways, he's just a, a maniacal dictator that just kills just to kill. I mean, if there's any suspicion of, you know, a regime change type of thing. But, you know, it made me say, you know what, I need to pray for the Christians there. I believe it was North Korea that used to be considered the uh, Jerusalem of the East. North Korea used to have a very high uh, Christian population before the regime came in. So, in other words, I can, I can pray because I care. But I may not do. And I think for you and for us, we need to understand that because as we go to Scripture, we see a lot of things that people are doing. And, and, and sometimes we just leave feeling guilty. Well, I should be doing this more and I should be doing this. And, and I really believe that the Lord through His Spirit need to, needs to show us what, do, what does He want you to do? Where can you put your energy? It's kind of like this. We only have a certain amount of energy. We need to know where God is funneling that to what purpose is my life. And then for you, it may be over here. What is your purpose, you know, that God has given you? What is your purpose? And get your energy so that it's focused. That's what you see with Nehemiah. You see focused energy. Again, if we want to be effective, if we don't want to be ineffective, if we don't want to be what I would call scattered, then we, we've got to believe that, you know what, to be godly, 
means to care, but to care doesn't mean that we always do. Um, we can pray, but we don't always have to do. I've been thinking about, um, by the way, for you, it, it, it also is, and I'm for myself, I have to also uh, realize, I have to hear the difference between the voice of God and the voice of others. Do you know what I mean by that? See, the voice of God says, this is what I must do. The voice of others, uh, people have all kinds of expectations for us. And sometimes we start running after people-pleasing and just the voice of others. And again, we have to be very careful. Why am I doing what I'm doing? Why are you doing what you're doing? Why are you putting the energies that you, you have into this particular thing? Um, again, uh, we need to hear the voice of people because we can help minister to them. But again, it's the voice of God that drives us. And this is what we find in Nehemiah. It was the voice of God. So caring is not the same thing as doing. And then I, I put on a third part. And by the way, he was a praying man, right? Months and months and months. Praying. So, so I've kind of gone like this. Godliness leads to caring, leads to praying. But the, the fourth point is that praying and waiting go hand in hand. Because again, if you compare chapter 1, verse 1, chapter 2, verse 1, compare those, that we're coming into chapter 2, but it's about four or five months later. And, and Nehemiah has been praying and praying and praying. That's what we looked at last week. We looked at the fact that, that uh, he exalted God, he confessed his sin, he was thankful, and then finally he, he uh, supplication, he asked God at the very end of chapter 2. He asked God. It says, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. So after he exalted God and confessed his sin and the sins of the nation and then went back and thanked God for who he was, he prayed. He prayed and asked. Again, that's a good, um, that's a good pattern for us to follow. So often we just go to God and ask, but we need to exalt him. But in the process of this, it wasn't like this was his prayer of that day, he said today. But again, this has been a process. Three, four, five months, up to five months, he has been praying about the situation in Jerusalem. Not only the, the exiles that had gone back, but the wall. Because without the wall, the exiles would not be protected. So praying and waiting goes hand in hand. And, and you might ask, well, why is waiting, why is patience an important part of the leadership process? By the way, today's message is all about leadership. But, but why is it? I mean, you know, leaders want to get it done. You know, like give me a project, let's get it done and move on, you know. And by the way, red tape drives us crazy. Just get out of the way. If you don't want to, you know, agree with me, just leave me. No, I don't do that. I love you. But the point is, why does God slow the process down? You know, why does he, why does he uh, have us wait? Why did he have Nehemiah wait? I'll, I'd say it this way, because God was not just trying to build a wall. See, God was building a man and a nation along the process of building the wall. Do you see the difference? See, if the only thing was the wall, well, then let's get it done. But in the process, God was building the man. And God was building and preparing the people so that when Nehemiah got there. So there's more. And, 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 and this has been a great encouragement to me because I'm very impatient at times. 
And I've started realizing, oh no, maybe the biggest person that God wants to change is me. Is me. <laughs> that this whole process of having to wait or the patience aspects or whatever, oh, God is just working in me. He's slowing me down. In fact, maybe he even slows me down to the point where after a while you say, eh, that wasn't even what God wanted in the first place. <laughs> So, praying and waiting go hand in hand. Be still and know that I am God, right? Psalms 46.10. So, when we get anxious and fearful and nervous and want to rush, we've got to wait. When you wait on the Lord in prayer, you're not just wasting time. You're actually, as one man said, you're investing it. See, this is the point. I don't know what God wants to do in your life. Some of you are leaders. Many of you are leaders. And maybe God puts something in. The first thing is, you can't care about everything. You've got to get your energies focused in what the Lord wants you to do. But then the Lord starts putting in your heart, this is what I want you to do. It might be the use of your spiritual gift. It might be leading a group of people. It might be a ministry. Or I need to reach out here in the community. Whatever it might be. But now there's takes patience. Sometimes we just want to say, let's do it. But God says, but I've got to build into you as well. And this waiting process is not <coughs> wasted time. I'm investing. I'm investing it. God is investing in me. God is investing in you. God is preparing both you and your circumstances so that his purpose will be accomplished. However, when the right time arrives for us to act by faith, we dare not delay. That's the point. See, sometimes we get all excited and, and God is working... But then there comes a point where you have to step out, as it were, in faith. Can't delay. I like what Exodus 14, I think it was Moses speaking to the people. Fear not, stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord. Do you see what he's saying? Stand firm, the salvation of the Lord, God's going to work. There's that, there's that uh, human responsibility, God's sovereignty that is continually throughout Scripture. You do, God does. <laughs> And we've got to keep it in that perspective. So again, waiting does not mean you are passive. See, you're accomplishing things during the wait. You continue to pray. You're progressing in your walk with God. You plan the project. We're going to see that in, in detail with uh, Nehemiah today. You're, uh, for this situation, he was preparing the king's heart. Again, waiting means, Lord, I'm abandoning myself to you. I'm abandoning myself to your purposes. So we've got to be careful that that's how we actually look at it. And, and again, I'm going to be looking at Nehemiah. I just want you to, you know, I'm going to try to apply it to today because Nehemiah is a subordinate to the king. And by the way, we are all subordinates to many people, right? Many of you don't own your own business. Therefore, you're a subordinate at work. <laughs> uh, I happen to be at the church and I'm a subordinate to the elders. Um, if you in your family, your kids are subordinate to your parents, and wives should submit. Submit. That's a biblical thought that our society, by the way, is just thrown out. But we're all submission. I mean, we're all submission, uh, submission uh, to many, 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 many. Okay. And and really, what I want to draw out is how do you work with the people that are above you? Okay. That's why the uh, the um, I, I, I named this the leader and his superiors. You know, how do you work with people who are above you? And by the way, with Nehemiah, this is a very hard guy to work with. King Artaxerxes was a very hard guy. 
And we'll see that in a moment. So the first thing is uh, serving the king. By the way, this was his normal business. Verse 1, chapter 2, verse 1. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes. So again, 20 years he's been king. By the way, after 20 years of being king, you start, you know, you get in the rut. You're not going to change me. You know, Nehemiah is going to want to change where the direction this king has gone. When the king was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now, I had not been sad in his presence, and the idea was ever. Verse 2, and the king said to me, why is your face sad, seeing you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of heart. Then I was very much afraid. By the way, why? Because Persian kings did not like their subordinates to be gloomy in their presence. When he said that he was very much afraid, i.e. terrified. By the way, I'm glad that Nehemiah gives us the insight into his life. Whoa. Because many times a king at that point would be then very suspicious. I mean, they had the power of life and death. They could literally have either thrown him out of the palace or literally killed him. So again, he was very much afraid. But as I was reading different commentaries and stuff, I, I, I liked what James Boyce, how he kind of named this section here. He named it this, Problem of Middle Management. <laughs> Think of Nehemiah as the middle manager. Okay? Again, leaders in the, in the superiors. Uh, Nehemiah, too, has many leadership principles that address the problem of middle management. And I would say this, most likely, if you are a leader, you're most likely in that position as a middle manager. Unless you own your own business, then nobody else is. But normally, we find ourselves in the middle manager's position. And that's not easy, right? Middle managers mean this. You have bosses that are above you, supervisors and executives and CEOs, and and then you have people underneath you, and you find yourself in the middle trying to accomplish their objectives with these people. Not easy. In fact, read an, uh, a thought, and it was, uh, the idea was this, you know, in these big mega churches, two, three, five, ten thousand people, they'll often have a, a senior pastor, he's like the teaching pastor, he's, he's the pastor that you would normally associate with that church, okay? You know, Charles Stanley. John MacArthur. But then underneath him, you'll have an executive pastor. That's kind of like a middle manager. But the article went on to say it was very difficult to be an executive pastor. Why? Because he's given the responsibility of getting all this stuff done so that the senior pastor doesn't have to, the teaching pastor. But many times he's not been given the authority to get it done. Responsibility without the authority. And so there's a conflict. He wants to go in this direction, but the, you know, their ideas may not always work, and yet he's supposed to be working for him. And, and uh, the guy said, it's pretty much an impossible uh, position. And, and I thought to myself, you know, in the many years I've been here, sometimes I have felt the same way with the elders. Not, not to criticize, but just to say, you know, I'm here and I can't, am I supposed to go in my direction or theirs? And then how does this work? And I can see where the frustration could often happen, right? Well, you might find yourself in that situation. You got the bosses, you're here and you're supposed to accomplish, maybe you've been given the responsibility, sometimes not the authority, you know, and you go back and forth. And how do you deal with people? That's why it's hard. That's why I would say it's very hard. Sometimes the middle manager 
Maybe he's alert and visionary and innovative. Many times he then becomes a threat to the guy who he's supposed to be helping, right? And you kind of want to get rid of him. Or maybe he just becomes an echo. An echo of the boss. In other words, he just does everything well just like the boss does. Like, why do we even need the guy? Why do we need that guy anyways? Because he just seems to be doing the same. It's hard to let someone kind of fly on their own. Um, So anyways, that's a little bit about middle managers. I just want you to kind of see, you know, Nehemiah 2 is a great encouragement if you're working here. Okay? This is, again, a very trying situation for Nehemiah. Uh, He had no rights. He was actually part of the exiles. Again, the king of Persia were absolute rulers. Artaxerxes was an absolute ruler. Their word was law. Life and death were in their hands. I mean, you know, you might say, you don't understand the boss that I have to deal with. Well, you don't understand Artaxerxes. (laughs) Again, they were very difficult. One commentator said, quote, the Persian kings were impossible at best and often cruel, end quote. Their policies were hard, and because their policies were hard to those who they ruled over, they were always very suspicious of revolt. They were always under um, uh, 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 being assassinated. That's why you had a cup beer in the first place, as we said last week, because, again, uh, poison the wine, poison the food, whatever else. Uh, they were suspicious. Um, And any lack of loyalty by their subordinates would be quickly dealt with. So again, when we see that he was very afraid, that makes sense. That makes sense because he had never been sad in the the king's presence before. So look at number uh, Roman numeral two, responding to the king. And I said to the king, by the way, this is a really good response. Let the king live forever. Because that was his main job. That nothing would hurt the king. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the palace of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? So he actually lays out in verse 3 what has been on his heart for almost five months. It's about, my, it's about the city, the place of my father's grave. Again, rebuilding Jerusalem. Artaxerxes, the king, by the way, about 13 years earlier had been had actually stopped the rebuilding of Jerusalem. Now, once you get the context, he's been king for about 20 years. The Jews had had two waves of exiles go back, first under Zerubbabel, second under Ezra. But about 13 years earlier, they had started building the wall, and actually Artaxerxes had put a stop to it. So he is going to be attempting to ask the king for something that Artaxerxes had already, by law, said no to. And that is the rebuilding of Jerusalem. (coughs) If you want to see that, it's in Ezra chapter (coughs) 4. Let me just read it for you. You don't have to turn unless you want to. But Ezra chapter 4, verses 11 to 16. And it says this. This is a copy of the letter that they sent. These were the enemies to the Israelites. Had sent a letter to Artaxerxes, and this is what he wrote. To Artaxerxes the king, your servants, the men of the province beyond the river, beyond the trans-Euphrates river. So, but again, these are the enemies of the Jews. We're writing, your servants, the men of the, of the, uh, uh, the servants, uh, the men of the province beyond the river, send greetings. And now, 
verse 12, Be it known to the king that the Jews who came up from you to us have gone to Jerusalem. They are rebuilding that rebellious and wicked city. That's how they talk about Jerusalem. Verse 13, Now be it known to the king that if this city is rebuilt and the walls finished, (laughs) they will not pay tribute, custom, or toll, and the royal revenue will be impaired. You know, I mean, they're really sticking it to the Jews. Now, because we, we support, uh, we receive support of the palace, and it is not fitting for us to witness the king's dishonor. I mean, that's what the enemy always does. You know, we're just looking out for your best interest. Therefore, we send and inform the king, you will find that this city is a rebellious city, hurtful to kings and providences, and that the sedition was stirred up in it from of old. I mean, this has been going on for years and years. By the way, it was. That was, that was why the city was laid waste. You know, back when Nebuchadnezzar first laid it waste. We make known to the king that if this city is rebuilt and its walls finished, you will then, you will then have no possession in the province beyond the river. I mean, they really... And after he got the, the, uh, the letter, Artaxerxes said, No, you're right. Stop that. Under decree of the king, stop the building of the wall. And so that had happened a number of years earlier. Total stop. Now, Nehemiah was attempting the impossible in human terms. He was going to ask that this wall be rebuilt. I mean, have you ever heard the the phrase uh, of the, the law of the Medes and the Persians? Yeah, I mean, it's an actual phrase. In other words, once the law of the Medes and Persians, once a king said, this is it, you you couldn't change it. You could not change it. It wasn't like Nebuchadnezzar. He was was just one king. Medes and Persians were two nations that came together, and when one made the law, you couldn't change it. And certainly... You know, because it was under edict, and, and plus it was for a city that was known to be rebellious. I mean, look at all these things, how they're stacked up. Well, why does this encourage me? Because sometimes, you know, we look at our employers or whoever you're working for, well, they're just impossible to work with. <coughs> well, he was asking for an impossible thing. Let me give you another principle. The first principle I gave you was that praying and waiting go together. This, pr- this principle is this. Changing a heart is God's specialty. Changing a heart is God's specialty. Why? Because God is sovereign. He's actually over our superiors. And I've been bringing this up, but Proverbs 21.1, it says, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wills. The heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord. And, by the way, that's the whole point of prophecy. The whole point of prophecy is this. <clears throat> Sinful man will not thwart our sovereign God. So he tells us what's going to happen in the end. And, by the way, we move towards history to the end, and what's going to happen exactly like God said. Why? Because he, the heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord. God is going to accomplish his purposes. So again, the principle is changing a heart is God's specialty. I like how Chuck Swindoll, he said, Now, do not, I repeat, do not try to change people to fit your specifications. <laughs> oh yeah, the hand of the king is in the heart. The, hand of, uh, the heart of the, my boss is in your hand, Lord. Now let me tell you how to, go, uh, how to move them. Yeah, don't try to fit them to your specifications. Don't try to manipulate people, play games, 
planned schemes, trick or deceive them. Instead, tell God on them. I like that. Pray. Lord, you know my situation. Lord, you know who I'm dealing with. It may not be the boss. It might be your spouse. It might be your spouse. Lord, you know who you know who I married. It might be you. You might be the woman. Lord, you know him, and he is very frustrating to me. But Lord, I'm not going to try to change him because I know that you're sovereign. I'm not. By the way, that's when a woman can be the first Peter, a quiet and gentle heart. Up to that point, she's a nag. Right? But Lord, I'm just humbly laying him before you. And when you choose to crush him, I'll just thank you for it. <laughs> no. So again, you know, let God deal with your mate. Let God deal with your boss, their pride and stubbornness, whatever it might be. And by the way, don't tell them this, and I'm praying for you that God will get you. You know. Well, look at verse 4. Then the king said to me, what are you, what are you requesting? That, that's a huge... I mean, if you, don't, you might want to underline that. A king asking a cupbearer after he just heard what he was asking said, well, what are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven. I'd call that the telegraph prayer. That's how people have looked at that telegraph prayer. By the way, remember, he had been praying for four or five months. The foundation of Nehemiah's life and his request was based on the four or five months of praying consistently. Well, now, just as, by the way, and he didn't, when he said, what do you request? He didn't go like, Nehemiah did not do this. Oh, God. I mean, he said this silently as he's approaching the king's question. So I prayed to the God of heaven. As we looked at last week, prayer does not need to be long to be effective. By the way, how's your praying going? Remember last week we were talking about it doesn't have to be long. Don't pray like an orphan. An orphan is one who says, I have no relationship to the Father. We have an intimate relationship to our Father. And Matthew says he knows our need before we even ask. But again, as children, we need to go humbly and dependent uh, to our Father. So the king responds, and then Roman numeral three, he approached the approach to the king, or I would say this, the boss. <laughs> and this is risky, this is daring. Verse five, and I said to the king, if it pleases the king, I think that's very respectful, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, by the way, there's consistency. If, you're, you know, if, if he hadn't found favor in his sight, he wouldn't be asking him. But if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, and the queen sitting beside him, Well, how long will you be gone? And when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. He doesn't state it there, but in chapter 5 we know he was gone for, what, 12 years? 12 years. But he had apparently given him that piece of information, even while he's sitting there. Now, some commentators have said, well, he probably only said a year, and maybe he went, rebuilt the wall, because most of chapters 1 through 6 is within a year's time frame, went back and made other arrangements to go a second time and maybe even a third. I actually think he stayed the whole 12 years. He was the governor. 
He turned out to be the governor. So he, he, he had in his mind what he needed, and when Artaxerxes asked, he told him, giving him a time. Now again, Nehemiah succeeded, but his success shows how we can succeed with our positions of middle management, okay? And let me throw out some for you. In other words, how was it that Nehemiah was so successful? The first is, I think he was loyal. It's a subtle point. But even when he says, let the king live forever, I do believe that that was genuinely in Nehemiah's heart. I don't think that was just a, you know, that's the standard phrase. By the way, that would be a standard phrase that you would say to a monarch. (laughs) Okay? Let the king live forever. But I believe that it was actually a genuine interest in his heart. I don't think he was false. I don't think he was hypocritical in his loyalty. In fact, Colossians 3.22 says this, and he's talking not to workers, but to actually slaves, because again, in the first century, there were many people who were slaves. I've heard numbers as high as a third to a half of the Roman Empire were slaves, because Rome was conquering, and when you got conquered, you didn't hold your position, you became a slave. And Paul in Colossians 3.22 says this, Slaves, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as men pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. And I believe that's who Nehemiah was. Feared the Lord. He wasn't a people pleaser, but he was loyal to the man that he was serving, and that was Artaxerxes. So he was a loyal man. In other words, he looked out for Artaxerxes' interests. Boy, as Christians, again, providing they're godly, we should be looking out for the interests of those who are employed, that employ us, right? Sometimes we think, well, it's the Lord and everything else, it doesn't matter no matter how I act. No, you should be the best worker. It's sad because you hear these stories. Oh yeah, the only people that ever never paid me off, you know, paid back their loans to me were Christians. I've heard that a number of times from different people. And I think, isn't that sad? That it's the Christians that have the bad name? When it comes to the work ethic, it should be, no, we don't agree, and I'm not saved, but he is, but boy, he is loyal. But fearing the Lord, in other words, it has to be as far as biblical. I mean, I asked him to lie one time on the tax return, but he wouldn't do that. Because he was more loyal to his God than he was to me. But he's a loyal man. He's a loyal woman. So he was loyal. The second thing is he was tactful. Again, go back to that little phrase. Why is your face sad? What is that, verse 2? By the way, at that point, Nehemiah didn't do this. He didn't speak his mind. By the way, you wouldn't do that in front of a monarch. Anyways, but, you know, but our terminology of the day, you know, expressed his frustration. He didn't let it all hang out. Call a spade a spade. Yeah. He was very careful. He was tactful. Actually, this is what he did. When asked the question, he responded with a disarming question. That's a good way. That's something I have learned because I used to just let it all hang out. This is what I think. By the way, there was a man in this room, but I won't even say who it was, but would always ask me questions. I always thought that was odd. I'd be in and he would ask a question, like in a meeting, deacon elder. And I would go for, you know, and he would ask a question. Well, you know what? Questions disarm. And that's what Nehemiah was doing. When asked, he he gave a disarming question. Well, why shouldn't my face be sad? And, you know, he goes on 
But it was a question. I mean, the place of my birth, the place where my father's, you know, not birth, the place where my, uh, you know, my uh, uh, ancestors disrepair. Why wouldn't I be sad? You know, as you work with a boss, as you work with an employer, you know, that's a good point. Be tactful. You go a long ways. Not in manipulating. You're, in, you're actually um, loyal. You're, you're respecting their authority. How about another point of uh, tactfulness? Nehemiah presented his desire as a personal matter, not just a political one. <coughs> Verse 3. Why should not my face be sad when the city, again, what I just read, the place of my father's graves lies in ruins. I mean, he uses the word my and my, and, and he uses we later on. So, I mean, this is personal, Artaxerxes. And so there was a relationship, cupbearer, there was a lot of trust already built, and now when he expresses himself, he puts it in the personal. It's not just, well, the exiles are in danger. No, it's, it's personal to me. Esther did exactly the same thing. Uh, what was it, 40, 50 years earlier, when he, she approached King Xerxes, that would have been, what, the father, or the Xerxes' predecessor. When, when asked about the situation, remember Esther and the Jews were going to be annihilated, and this is what Esther said, the queen, Esther answered, if I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it pleases the king, let my life be granted me for my wish and my people and my request, he goes on and on. Made it very personal. Well, obviously it was personal. The, she was the queen. This is my wife. What are you saying? It's, you're under danger. <laughs> but again, I think the principle holds true that, you know, make it personal. And then the final thing is this. Notice the choice of words. Verse 3, in referring to Jerusalem, he says this, the city. Verse 5, to the city of my father's graves. He never mentions the word Jerusalem. Jerusalem immediately was like, you know, it's like certain words, if I use them for you, they just create a lot of emotion. Even politically, Democrats, Republicans, you know, whatever. Probably a bad illustration. But the point is, is this. If he had used the word Jerusalem, it would almost have been like a red flag. He just said the city. But that's tactful. That's being very, very tactful. I like what Dale Carnegie used to say. If you want to gather honey, don't kick over a beehive. Well, be tactful. You know, don't kick it over and then expect to get the honey. So he approaches them tactfully. The third thing is this. He approaches them honestly. When asked why he was sad, he responded actually with a very accurate uh, record of what was going on in his life. Verse 2 he admits humbly that he was very afraid. He wasn't lying. And the second city, uh, thing is this. When asked what is on your heart, he admits it's the city. It's the city of my fathers. So he was honest. He went directly to the king. He told the king not only that, but he told them his plan. Uh, James Boyce said this, of bosses. Now, again, this is not in, in the context, but just in, of bosses in general. Bosses need to know what is going on to approve, disapprove, or redirect the plans. Yeah, bosses need to know what's going on. According to the bigger picture, here's a secret, he says. You want to succeed with your boss? Don't surprise him. Be creative, but be sure he is with you as you plow along. Yeah, don't, don't surprise him. So, again, he was an honest man. He was tactful. 
Third, fourth, fourth is uh, he praying man. We've seen this over and over again. It says, so I prayed to the God of heaven. Not only that, but he, was, he carefully planned. Remember, we said waiting, there's things that are happening. One of the things that happen is that you're able to plan. If he had, if he had gotten the, the burden in chapter 1 and went right to Artaxerxes, he would not, the plan would not have been complete. But here he had had about four or five months to think it through. He had a single fixed goal. What was it? Rebuild the walls because that will protect the people. And it also protects the glory of God because it's the city of God. So he planned it out. He had a fixed goal. Effective people, as we have said, do first things first and they do them one at a time. And, and that principle is seen in Nehemiah's life over and over again. He does the priority thing first. It's, I, I found in my life at times I get too scattered. That's why I used that word earlier. Oh, I get excited about this, and I get it. And I've realized in the last actually few weeks, I need to get really focused on the things that, even more focused on what God wants me to do. That's called goal setting. And unless a leader has a clear understanding of what he is trying to do and why it is important, other important but lesser matters will crowd in and chase the proper goal away. How does this work in parenting? If you have young kids at home, you know what your priority is? Your kids. By the way, not to make them child-centered. It's unfortunate that in our society, Christianity is sometimes seen as, it comes to parenting, we become very child-centered. No, we are trying to produce a child that is selfless. Let me, I'll give you an example. Like, you don't have to agree with this, but one of the things that my wife and I decided a long time ago, that every, every activity my kids are in, I'm not going to be there. Because I want them to know they're not the center of this world. Now again, you may go to everything, whatever. But the point is, is this. You want to you have selfless children. Now, why do I say that? Because if you're a parent, that's the goal right now, right? That's one of the major goals in your life. If you're doing this, this, and this, and you've got parents, I mean, you're a parent and you have children at home, you might want to say, you know what? Let me do first things first. What's the priority of my life? And then that takes planning. Lord, how am I going to disciple, nurture and admonition like Ephesians 6 says to my children? How am I going to do this? Lord, help me out. Let me get focused because this world just creates too much busyness for me. There's an interesting story about Yogi Berra. Again, he played for the Yankees back in, what, the 50s and 60s? Catcher. And Hank Aaron came up to bat. And... By the way, Hank Aaron was the power hitter of the Braves at the time. And the, the teams were playing in the World Series. And as Hank comes up to bat, uh, as Yogi often did, he'd just chatter, 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 chatter. And this is one of the things he said at the time. You know, by the way, to encourage his teammates and also to distract and discourage the Braves. And so he's just chattering, chattering, chattering. And, and um, Yogi tells uh, Hank, Henry, called him Henry, kind of, Henry, you're holding the bat wrong. You're supposed to hold it so that you can read the trademark. And uh, Hank just went up to the plate. Uh, next pitch, bang, left bleachers. Rounded the plate. And this is what he told um, Yogi. I didn't come here to read. No, he kept his eye on the ball. He actually kept his eye on the goal. 
Nehemiah kept his eye on the goal. It became the passion of his heart. He carefully planned. He had worked out how he would achieve the goal. Not only did he keep his eye on the goal, but he actually had the plan. Because he said in verse 7, if it pleases the king, and, and he gives him all this information. He tells him, well, allow me to go. That's verses 5 and 6. Give me letters for safe passage, verse 7. Give me a, more, uh, a letter to Asaph, even knew the guy's name, of the king's forest, so that I could build beams for the gates of the, of the for- <coughs> fortress of the temple and of the, the wall of the city. He needed gates in the city. And then finally, number four, and by the way, I'm going to need a place to live. So that will also be the, the wood I use. I mean, it's all planned out. As soon as the king said, what's your request? Right here it is. Sometimes we, well, what do you, what do you request? Well, let me think about this. <laughs> I'd say it this way. People of faith need orderly minds. See, sometimes it's thought this way. Faith is not, or excuse me, it, it should be thought this way. Faith is not a synonym for disorder or substitute for careful planning. Oh, I walk by faith. What does that mean? Well, you know, God's just going to tell me as I go. No, 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 no. Faith, you can, have a, you can be a man of faith, a woman of faith. You know what God wants you to do, but you should, have a, you should still have an orderly plan. Faith does not negate orderliness. You know, faithful people, people that walk by faith, think through the problems they face. They can tell you step one, but by the way, they can probably tell you step two, three, four, five, maybe all the way up to step 12. Now, sometimes things happen. Well, I thought God was going to lead me this way, but he's chose to supply this, so therefore, but that's fine because I, can, I see the big picture. Or maybe you only see this much of the, much of the picture, but as God blesses, oh, it's way, oh, I thought God was going to bring me here, but it's only here. But you know what? In the whole process, they've thought it through. Faithful people, men of faith, women of faith, should be orderly people. And that's what you see with Nehemiah. Charles Swindoll writes this. It is a great concern to me that so many people who, are, who undertake some project in the Lord's work enter without careful planning. They abruptly begin without thinking through the question such as, quote, where will this lead us? How can I express this in clear, unmistakable, concrete terms? What are the costs, the objectives, the possible pitfalls? What process should, should be used? You know, all these different questions, end quote. I could name a number of individuals or families who entered the ministry with enthusiasm, but later dropped out because they had not considered the cost. The most disillusioned people I know are those in the Lord's work who are paying the price of not thinking through their plans. And I say a hearty amen to that. Because I've watched it. That's why Jesus talks about counting the cost. Not just in coming to him, but he even uses an application. If God wants to do something in your life, you've got to count the cost. Because if you put your energy here, it can't be here. We are limited. See, if you don't count the cost, really what you're saying is, uh, I'm God. Because I have unlimited resources and unlimited time and whatever else. But limited people need to count the cost. And then finally, and we'll close with this one, he glorified God. He not only planned, put his hand to the plow, did all this praying, did all this preparation, all this work, but he glorified God. Dependence on God does not eliminate planning any more than it eliminates hard work. See, you can plan and still be totally dependent on God. 
While Nehemiah was planning, he was praying. And after the king said yes to the request, Nehemiah acknowledged that in the final analysis, the success was not due to his careful planning, but to God. So you see that in verse 8. And the king granted me what I asked. Praise God, I did it right. What's the next part? For the good hand of my God was upon me. See, a godly man. I mean, you say, boy, this guy just put it all together. He was like, he was like a, I mean, such a model of getting something accomplished. And yet, when it was done, what is the first thing he did? God did it. I can't tell you how many times I have prayed in that seat. Lord, today's a, please prepare the heart. Lord, please allow me to speak right. Lord, please use me. Go through the message. Amen. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And I forget to thank God. And I'll be home an hour later. Whoop! Bang, bang, bang. Who allowed you to do that, John? Well, but let's not bring too much conviction on me. How about you? (laughs) Right? You really thankful for what you have? Simple thing like food. Sleep. Went through a 40-hour week. Lord, thank you for the strength. Bills paid. Thank you, Lord. Relationships together. Thank you, Lord. Difficult trials coming up. Lord, thank you for giving me the strength to go through them. My grandmother's probably going to pass away today. I've been praying and praying and praying. My question will be, will I still thank God after she's gone and as I deal with my grab? It's easy to get, you know, you're in the crises, you're in the trial, you're in the moment. Lord, please. Ah, the good hand of my God was on me. He was so God-centered. So God-centered. Nehemiah did everything he possibly could have done for success to happen. But when it was all said and done, he gave the complete credit to God. And I would say this. One sure sign of maturity is the ability and willingness to recognize, to recognize, to recognize the hand of God in our life's affairs. That's a sign of maturity. Yes, it's you, Lord. Because we don't want to live like atheists. But sometimes we do. We're practicing atheists. G. Gordon Liddy, do you know what I'm talking about? Watergate guy? Co-conspirator? When he was released from prison, this is what Liddy said. Liddy declared, quote, I have found within myself all I need and all I ever shall need. I am a man of great faith, but my faith is in George Gordon Liddy, and I have never failed me yet. Now, you say, wow. But again, when was the last time you prayed for strength, and when was the last time you really thanked God for everything you have? Because if you haven't, you're really a practicing atheist, right? (laughs) Just got to read verse 9. Because it's like Lee prayed at the beginning of the service. God gives us more than we ask or think. Because in verse 9 it says this, Then I came to the governor of, governors of the province beyond the river. This is his trip. All right, now he's in the land, okay? Seven, eight hundred miles. And gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent with me officers of the army and horsemen. That's the cavalry. You know what he's telling us in there? That God worked in Artaxerxes' life and gave him beyond what he asked. It's kind of like Ephesians. Now to him who was able to do far more abundantly than we, than we ask or think. Because see, Nehemiah never asked for the Calvary. He never asked for the officers of the army. 
But when God changes the heart and moves the king's heart, okay, Nehemiah, all that's yours. Oh, and by the way, you're going to go with my personal guard. <laughs> oh, and if anybody ever, the Calvary will be there too. Wow. From going to saying, you're not going to build the wall, to now, he is, <laughs> the king, yes, you can go as my cupbearer. I'll give you all the supplies, and I'm going to personally make sure you get there safely so you can accomplish your objective. That's the impossible happening because Nehemiah was the godly man that God used. And how does God want to use you? I don't know. I don't know what God has put in your heart, but just make sure that in the process, you do it in a godly way, right? So why? He gets the glory. He gets all the glory. Let's stand as we worship. Hey, God does more abundantly than we ask or think, right? Let me apply that two ways. One is this. You know, at the moment of your salvation, think about how much He did. You are a damned sinner because of your sin before God, and yet because of the sacrifice of Christ on the cross, all those sins were forgiven because Christ paid the penalty for those sins on the cross. And not only that, but you were given Christ's righteousness. God took your sins, placed on Christ, He paid for them, Christ's righteousness given to you on your behalf, beyond all that we could ever ask or think. And we stand secure in Him forever and ever and ever. And we are, as the Bible says over and over again, children of God. We're part of God's family. I would just ask, do you really grab that as believers? Do you... Do you understand that as an unbeliever? You might be here and you said, I've never received Christ. Let me say that God can do more abundantly beyond what you could ask or think. Because the scripture is very clear that if you have never received Christ, that you are under the wrath of God for your sin. And so what you need to do is you need to go to Jesus Christ and ask for his forgiveness. Repent of your sin, turn from your sin, and believe on what He has done and only He could do on the cross. And that is pay for the penalty of your sin. And you can be forgiven right here, right now. But you've got to go to Jesus Christ and receive Him. As many as received Him, what? To them He gave the right to be children of God, to those who believe in His name, right? You receive Jesus Christ. But the second thing is this. The second part of that Ephesians verse, the last part says this. Not only could more than we could ask or think, according to the power that works in within us, to be to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus. The power is the Spirit of God and the Word of God, right? The Word of God working by the uh, by the illumination of the, uh, the Spirit of God. And, and I want you to think about this. You know, you've been talking about Nehemiah. Boy, that was spectacular. Hey, listen, that was just a wall. It was God working in a man's life. But you know what? God wants to work in each one of your lives to do far more abundantly than you could ever ask or think. He wants to accomplish more than we can even imagine. But again, it's because of His power and verse 21 for His glory. We've got to be willing to do this. Lord, I am your servant. I am your slave. I am just, I am an instrument in your hand. Do you, do you believe that as a believer? Lord, Show me what you want me to do. Allow me to experience your power in the process and let me truly give you the glory when it happens. Systematically in my life. But you may be over here. Yeah, all right, I'm fearful. Lord, 
just use me. If you just say that, Lord, just use me. Just show me what you want me to do, and I'll walk step by step by faith more abundantly than you could ask or think. Give him the glory. Let's pray. Father, again, thank you for the excellent example of Nehemiah. And yet, Lord, you are calling each one of us to walk with you, to accomplish your purposes that you have through our lives. And I pray that as believers, that you might give us wisdom and faith to believe that you will work. And that as you are working, even right now, many of us have experienced and seen your power this week. Help us to give, give you the glory. Father, also, if there is anyone here that has never received you, may this truly be their day of salvation because they received Jesus Christ. Lord, again, thank you that just for the marvelous way that you work through each one of us, just help us to now leave here and, and not to forget. It is so easy to forget. Help us to meditate on what you want to do through us. In Jesus' name, amen.